Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Judge Me by My Cover. Our very, very special guest today is Brad King, who probably doesn't need any introduction. Brad is a world-renowned futurist and speaker, international best-selling author, and a media personality who covers the future of business, technology, and society. Brad also hosts the world's first and number one ranked radio show on fintech called Breaking Banks. Amongst all of that, he's also the CEO and founder of Movin, a very successful mobile startup, which has raised over 47 million U.S. dollars to date. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brad. It's great to be, uh, be on with you, Theo. It's, it's, it's great to be collaborating with you, and thank you for the kind introduction. I know. This is the first time that I'm actually not a guest on U.S., and we're reversing real, so I'm excited. And congrats on uh, Banking for All which is the latest in the bank series after the bank 2.0 in 2010 and bank 3.0 in 2012. And I love, love, love the tagline, banking everywhere and never at a bank. So can you tell us a little bit more about the central themes in this latest masterpiece of yours? <laughs> masterpiece, I like it. It is. Um, well, you know, look, the, the key thing is that like, if you think Bank 2.0 in 2010, I finished writing it on Christmas Day 2009. It was my first book and ended up being a bestseller in the space, you know, translated into a dozen languages. It's pretty wild for a first book. Um, and then the second book, uh, Bank 3.0 2012, um, when, you know, sort of mobile was really bed in and we saw what was happening there. Um, but it's it's been well almost uh, seven years between uh, drinks as we say in australia between bank two 3.0 and 4.0 um and that that was because i really didn't know what bank 4.0 was back in 2012 um and so it took me a while to sort of discern that so this the the, the theme of the book is centrally tied to that discovery process the aha moment when i figured out what was different this time and how it was going to change financial services forever, essentially. And that's where the, uh, the subtitle comes in, banking everywhere, never at a bank. That realization that as technology reduces the friction to the point where banking is essentially real time embedded in your world through technologies like mobile voice and in the future, smart glasses and, and so forth, um, that at that point, you have access to banking, you know, whenever you need it, but the dominant um, distribution layer is through that te those technologies and not through what we used to think of as a bank. Um, and I know, that, you know, this is obviously, um, uh, the, the challenge was communicating that. So as, as part of that, I looked at the most disruptive innovations throughout history and I discovered that they all had something in common which was when you have a big paradigm like shift, shift like this with massive behavioral change, uh, the key to that is really this first principles design, um, which I uncovered in the book. Great, Brett. So we've, we've seen quite a lot of uh, amazing uh, uh, things happening, especially within the fintech space over the last few years. Um, and, and most for me personally, I think uh, open banking um, has been quite a, uh, uh, in fact, clever regulation, I, I should say. Um, 
the quite a lot of things happening with with uh, Tencent and Tencent and Alipay in China, and we have uh, Europe with open banking and, and so on. What what are your uh, what are your key uh, key themes that that you're you're most bullish about for the next next say twenty four months? So when you ask the question, what is the bank of the future going to be like, or what does banking look like in the future? Um, as a futurist, what you're looking for is two two inputs into that process. One is um, how do humans behave and how have we historically adapted to change, um, and, you know, and how do we use banking? And the second is, um, you know, what are the trends that we're seeing that may inform that behavior? And um, if, if you look at, you know, a, a lot of the commentary around day-to-day banking, you know, people express their frustration with how hard it is to get stuff done. You know, the banks make them jump through all these hoops. They they reject them. You know, the, there's all the regulation around it. But then when you look at the fastest growing financial institutions today, they're all basically driven off digital distribution models. And this shouldn't be surprising. The whole world is moving from physical to digital wherever it can, even, um, you know, retail with, with products like clothing and cosmetics and things that we thought had to be embedded in a store uh, are, are moving, you know, to, to digital distribution mechanisms. So it shouldn't be a surprise that's happening with banking as well. But, uh, you know, Jack Ma famously said at the World Economic Forum in 2015 that he, he made a bet with the, the CEO of Walmart that Alibaba would beat them in 10 years on sales because of this key ability to scale digitally on the distribution side. You know, his point was, if you want 10,000 new customers at Walmart, you need new stores, you need a new warehouse, you know, this and that. For, for Alibaba, all we need is two servers, you know, two computers. And so that really frames the fastest growing financial services initiatives globally. And that's in the West, it's in the East. In the East, though, you have mobile payments, which is just has taken off phenomenally, which has 80 million customers today, the same size as JP Morgan Chase in terms of their retail banking uh, um, uh, footprint. And yet that happened in four years. So when you look at the future from that perspective, it seems fairly obvious that the bank of the future will be one that is predominantly digital in, in nature, um, especially from the point of view of things like opening account and day-to-day banking activity. So one of the key questions you have to ask in all of this, in, you know, when you're looking at the future, is what is a bank? What does a bank do for you? And that's where I sort of really break it down in the book as three core pieces of utility. The ability to safely store money, the ability to safely move money, so make payments, uh, you know, pay to store, et cetera, send money to your friends, build payments. And then thirdly, the ability to access credit when and where you need it. And it turns out that almost in all instances, um, that utility can be better delivered through technologies that we're seeing emerge today than what we used to do with a piece of plastic, writing a check, you know, an application form in a bank branch, et cetera. Um, if you look at something like payments utility and you see what's emerging, obviously people want instantaneous payments. If I'm uh, sending you some money and, um, you know, I say to you, hey, let me send you 50 bucks to help you cover dinner. Now, ideally, 
in an ideal world, you would see that $50 appear in your bank account immediately. Now, your friend would use a swipe gesture on their phone or tell uh, their Siri, send, uh, send Theo 50 bucks, and it would be done. And so that's obviously the environment we're moving into. So when you look at that and you look at what's the best example of that sort of future type of payments that, that we're looking at, then 11th of November last year, you see um, the single stay in China. And you see 60% of the $31 billion in transactions that were done, 31 billion US, that is, in transactions that were done, were done using biometric identification, not a chip and pin, you know, card number, password, username, any of those things that we have, you know, traditionally use in the, in the West today. Um, and so... Um, and, and China did $22 trillion in mobile payments last year, more than all of the plastic card schemes combined. Um, and that was just in China. So it's pretty clear from that where the future of mobile payments will be. Then you start looking at value stores and credit, and we see similar examples where that actually the most useful credit is either predictive in nature or contextual in nature like when you walk into a grocery store um, I should know how much you spend on groceries if you don't have enough cash to buy your groceries this week you shouldn't have to wait till you get to the checkout to find out you know it should it should be um, a solution should be presented to you when you walk in the store or, or, or just automatically and so you know th there are just a few examples of how banking is reframed through the tech so when you think about things like credit access, Credit access can be much better delivered either on a predictive basis or contextually. So what I'm talking about is, for example, I should be able to estimate when you need, based on your behavior, help with credit, when you're going to be short of cash to pay your bills. Um, but I can do that um, based on some context as well. Like, for example, if you walk into a grocery store, um, by geofencing. I know you frequent this grocery store. I know how much you spend in the grocery store. Today, I know you don't have enough money in your account to cover your grocery bill. So right now today, banks wait till you get to the checkout. You swipe your card and it's declined. Th there has to be a better solution to that. So when you walk in the store, presenting you with solutions to that problem, uh, it, that's the ideal place to do that. And so technology will lead us to a better framing of the utility of banking in day-to-day -day life. I would love to get to that state because um, I, 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 I hear you. It needs to be a little bit more seamless. It needs to be smarter. So with that being said, and I know, you know, what we just talked about too, we talk a lot about, the east versus the west right how the east from a payments perspective you know uh the volume that has been transacted last year and also biometrics and, and all of that why do you think some of the main differences is caused by is it because they have a newer infrastructure right in china that they can afford to start things fresh or is there just a fundamental way how they're approaching innovation that's causing some of the differences so it, it, i did cover this off in bank four and there's two primary reasons why china has exploded from a mobile payments perspective compared with the us i mean us we're talking about um you know under 100 billion in mobile payments last year china 22 trillion it's not even 
in the same universe, right, um, in comparison. Uh, so why? Why are you so successful in China? Well, the first thing is they didn't have a lot of legacy payments architecture. They didn't use checks. Not a lot of people had plastic cards. Cash was sort of dominant. So the only behavior they had to shift was really, you know, that, that use of cash. Um, and cash was not um, great for things like mobile online purchasing. So there was a clear uh, um, use case for it. The second is network effect. The first real use case that took off in China was the, uh, the LICI, the red packets at Chinese New Year. Um, and, uh, you know, th these uh, um, were traditionally physical red envelopes uh, or packets that were given as gifts to people in, um, over Chinese New Year um, instead of sort of the Christmas gifts that we give in, in the West, you know. Um, and... Um, by putting this onto mobile payments platforms and demonstrating they could deliver these, you know, at scale of, you know, hundreds of millions of these red packets, the mobile payments networks, you know, under Tencent, WeChat and Alipay demonstrated their utility. They demonstrated they were safe. They demonstrated it worked to send money. So people started thinking, well, if I can use this to send a red packet, why can't I use it to buy coffee at Starbucks or equivalent? Or why can't I, you know, pay for my... Uh, uh, you know, noodle, noodle lunch uh, or rent, you know, and, and um, this took off. But, you know, because also they were sending money to family with the red packet stuff, it had network effect. And we're talking about two very large, um, you know, e-commerce platforms or one e-commerce, one, one social network, Alibaba's e-commerce platform and Tencent's, uh, Tencent WeChat social network platform. So they both had very strong network effect. And so you combine these two things, lack of legacy and, um, you know, the, uh, the network effect. And that's really what has powered the, the Chinese uh, ecosystem. And it is quite different in that respect to the U.S. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Perfect. So that was a that was a great comparison, uh, Brett. So in, in terms of the the, the global landscape, uh, if you had a crystal ball. What do you see happening in five to 10 years time? So I, I think um, if you see the battle that's framing right now, you know, the US sort of thinks of it as um, the, the tokenization of plastic cards, the 16 digit card number versus or QR codes. It, actually, it's not. It's, it's, it's really, you know, the plastic card paradigm, point of sale, plastic card, the need to um, apply at a bank, you know, with a wet signature to get that card. It's that versus download on an app and use your face to pay. And that's really the battle between the Chinese ecosystem and Alipay is already in 100 countries. You know, WeChat, similar, 77 countries. And so I think that you have to frame the battle in that respect. You know, it's... Uh, it's um, very low friction using your face to pay versus trying to adapt a 
know, 50-year-old system to new technologies. It's actually interesting you mentioned that because um, we were just chatting earlier. If you look at what a few of the fintechs are doing, not just in the US, but also in, in Japan and, and the UK, they, for some strange reason, they all seem to be moving towards uh, offering a branded credit card, um, <laughs> which sort of, you know, it's like, are you defeating the purpose of being, you know, a, a fintech, being able to do a lot of the digital payments? Why do you think that is? Well, you know, we, when we launched Movin in the US, uh, we tried to launch without plastic. In fact, our original tagline that we played with was no paper, no fees, no plastic. And, uh, of course, um, the card scheme said, no, you can't do that. You've got to have plastic. And their argument was the point of sale infrastructure was just not uh, there yet in terms of contactless payments. Um, so um, I think part of it is legacy, um, legacy business approach, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And hopefully, you know, very soon we'll be able to uh, move off of these cards because I don't want to keep investing in a bigger wallet. It's getting crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. So uh, just looking back, uh, kind of going back in time now, so 2010, right? So when your first book was published. Um, uh, so what, what, what got you uh, thinking about the first book? And, and that should have been a trigger, right? I mean, when you said, okay, I'm going to write this and I'm not sure if you planned for it to be a bestseller. And of course it was a bestseller, but uh, what was the aha moment then? Actually, I blame this on my good friend, Peter Brooks who uh, was the head of uh, e-channel delivery at HSBC at the time in 2005. And I'd been working as a sort of strategic advisor to HSBC for many years at this point. And in November 2005, uh, Brooksy came to me and he said, uh, listen, um, I've got some budget left over. <laughs> you know, one of these budget burner projects at the end of the year. He said, I, I really want to do something interesting with it, though. Um, could you do a research paper on how technology is going to impact HSBC's retail business over the next 20 years? Because he knew I loved doing the futurist stuff and the prediction stuff, you know, and so he's like, you know, let, you know, do, do, a, you know, do some really solid research on this and give us that outlook. Tell us what it's going to be like. So I wrote this report. It was called HSBC 2.0. So I presented to the board and... Um, that was that was fairly well received, but there was elements of apathy there. You know, are you crazy? By 2015, mobile's going to have to take the branch as the number one channel. Uh, this is ridiculous. And th yet that's what's happened. Um, and so I realized that my experience was not uncommon, that there were, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of frustrated techies in banks facing that same uphill battle in terms of, getting traditional incumbent executives to understand the impact of technology. So I took that on as my role, become the voice of those uh, thousands of technologists who were experiencing this frustration day to day. And so I took that report, I converted it into the book. Um, I did a ton of research around it. I had some uh, of my friends help me uh, pull that together. 
and and publish the book. And and that's exactly how it worked. You know, I had these these technologists, heads of innovation and so forth, heads of digital. They'd get the book. They go, oh, this is exactly what we needed. They take it to their CEO or the CEO, and um, you know, end up you know every every manager in the bank would end up with a copy of it. Um, you know, to have that conversation. So uh, it worked exactly uh, how I had hoped. So last question before we close. I presume you're working on your next book because you don't stop working. Um, so if so, what is it going to be about? It's not Bank 5.0, let me put it that way. Uh, it, <laughs> um, so, you know, I, from this point forward, I will tend to do a lot more futurist writing. I think I've said quite a bit in banking and maybe I've said everything I need to say in banking. We'll see. Uh, time will tell. But I'm working on a sequel to Augmented. One of the questions that came out of the book before Bank 4.0, Augmented Life in the Smart Lane, was um, really about how society changes, how governance changes, how ec economies change with the introduction of artificial intelligence. So I'm tackling that. It's called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. That's the uh, working title. Um, but I think that's probably going to end up being the title. Um, I've got a co-author. He's an economist out of uh, um, Hong Kong. His name's uh, Dr. Richard Petty, um, who's helping me put it put together some of the economic models and stuff like that. Um, and what we've learned out of that research is really compelling. Um, but essentially, the big shift is when artificial intelligence and, and sort of this broad technology impacts the world, it actually changes the way... Um, Economics 101 supply and demand curves work. And um, that changes the way labor participation occurs um, and that flows on to change sort of everything in society. It, it, along with the fact that you've got these populist movements like Brexit and Trump and, uh, and so forth, um, you've got increasing inequality, you've got the immigration issue. We've thrown all of that into the pot to look at, um, you know, how uh, governance and uh, economic policy and, and um, social structures will emerge uh, in the 21st century in an AI-based world. Um, and it's super interesting, and I think it's uh, it's going to be the best book yet. I, I guess they all say that. But I, hopefully by now I'm getting better at writing. You know, I think that that's the journey I've taken personally. So. That's awesome. I can't wait to, to read it. Um, I still remember the first time ever that I met you was actually when Augmented came out. So I look forward to the sequel. And with that, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank Cheers, you so man. much, Rod. Thank Bye. you.